Lord. Amen. And thank you, Jimmy. Right? <laughs> Thanks. Wow, it really is good to be with you all today. I know it's, a, it's um, you thought, oh, he's still here? Yeah, but um, just I got a month, I got a month. I'm going to do the best I can. <clears throat> One of the elders said to me, well, Pastor Dennis, you know, President Obama worked up to the last day. I said, yeah, I'm working the last day. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be here, and uh, I'll be here to the end of the July, um, and really glad to be with you. I want to thank you for uh, jumping in. There's, uh, there was a call out for folks who work in Royal Hood, and many of you rose to the occasion. I think I really appreciate it. If there, I'm not sure if there's any spaces left, but, um, but Pastor Rose says she's always interested in anybody who wants to check things out, wants to figure out how things go and might be a good opportunity to get your feet wet and be ready in the fall if you so desire. I <clears throat> also want to thank folks for signing up for Vacation Bible School. Last week, we had announcements about VBS, and I said, man, I've been in church since I was 10, and, and we never actually said what VBS stood for last week, and I thought, if you've been in church long enough, you kind of know, you know, but we probably should say it's Vacation Bible School. And... Um, I was one of those kids who made stuff with the ice cream sticks because that's what they used to do back in the 70s. We made our crafts with ice cream sticks. And then I became an adult or a young adult and helped with the skits um, and did all the goofy skits and things. And now it's gotten more sophisticated, a lot more in video. But um, some of you, this would be a wonderful opportunity to be involved and to minister to uh, kids in our church and in our neighborhood. So I want to thank you for your involvement. I also want to say just before I pray that... um, I'm grateful for the search team. It looks like an awesome group of people, and I had no role in that. And, and by covenant um, guidelines, I'm not allowed to influence anything about the search for the new pastor because I've had people ask me, and uh, so I'm out of that process, so be happy. I don't uh, influence those things, but I am grateful for a group of people that reflect the breadth of the sanctuary, and I really uh, hope that you would be praying for that team and for what God is doing in this next new season. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time that we have together. Lord, I'm grateful, Lord, for just the spirit of worship we had today. Uh, Lord, I confess I'm a little disappointed it's not fuller in here because it's such a wonderful experience we had with testimonies and, and singing and celebration and a recognition that you are alive and active in the world and in our lives. Lord, the world is a troubled place. There's a lot of things that trouble us and annoy us and frustrate us and even frighten us. But we are grateful that you are in control of our lives as well as the affairs of human beings and even whole nations. So, Lord, we ask zealously that you would just be present in this time, these few minutes that we have together to look into your word and to be encouraged and challenged and stimulated. We pray, Spirit, that you would speak to us in the way that only you can. And I pray this in the name and authority of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So when I was a young man, several people who knew me said that God was calling me to full-time vocational ministry, but I had convinced myself that I should stay on the track and become a chemical engineer. I wanted to be a successful chemical engineer, and by successful, successful, I meant wealthy. And um, (laughs) long story behind that. But But even when I came out with the degree, the recession of the early 80s meant that a bunch of us were not getting the jobs that we had thought we would get. Some folks were biding their time. Some of us were hustling to find other jobs. And I wound up starting to teach math at a private school in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Now, if you've ever seen the movie To Serve With Love, that dates me a little bit. That was the 60s. Those schoolgirl days, Lulu. Ah, oh, gee, I'm old. Never mind. But, 
But there was a movie with Sidney Poitier in the 60s. He was an engineer who didn't have a job as an engineer, so he was going to bide his time working as a teacher in a school in London. If you remember, by the end of the movie, and I'm not giving away a 40, 50-year-old movie, he, um, he gets an offer from a company and he tears it up. But anyway... Uh, so I went to go teach math with my engineering degree. And by the second year, they had given me a, a chemistry class because chemistry wasn't being taught, but we had a lab. So I volunteered, gave me the chemistry class. They gave me a physics class. Next thing I know, the physics teacher was gone and the computer teacher were gone. I don't know anything behind that, but I got asked to do physics and computer as well. So I had, a ma- I had math, chemistry, physics, and computer. So I, I didn't know what to do for teaching computer because that guy was gone and there was no syllabus. I went to the bookstore and bought a book on programming in basic. Uh, some of you are old enough to remember that, you engineers out there. And uh, so I taught the computer class. And, uh, and I was actually starting to enjoy this by my second year. By the third year, they made me the chairman of the science department. And I was a young guy, well-liked at the school. Um, the headmaster said, well, you're a gifted teacher. And, uh, and the kids liked me because, I think because I was young and, uh, and fair. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm an amateur saxophone player. I'm not a pro like, like Troy. But they uh, let me play sax. In fact, when the school put on a musical, they would hire professional musicians for the pit. But they asked me to play my sax in there. I remember we did Grease. Go Grease Lightning. I guess I'm still showing my age in all of this. All right. Anyway, I was enjoying this. But I still was continually agreeing with God that I was a pilgrim. And that's what I called myself. And that I would hold loosely to whatever God gave me as possessions. And I'd be willing to go in whatever direction that he would direct. So I started to believe what people were saying to me about ministry. And I had married a woman who said that God might be calling her uh, to work in some sort of ministry. So we were open, but not sure. After several months of events that I don't have time to explain, Susan and I decided that I'd walk away from my job as chair of the science department. We packed up a three-year-old and a newborn and a Ford Pinto. Yep, a Pinto. Um, I didn't buy that Pinto. Someone gave it to me, long story. And we headed to Illinois for seminary, not knowing what to expect or how I would do, but trusting that the Holy Spirit would guide us. Now, I have way too many stories of God's provision, his direction, opportunities, connection, and correction. And time just won't allow. But I learned that depending upon the Holy Spirit means that when life gets interrupted, disrupted, and even corrupted, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I learned this. The Holy Spirit has a way of bringing glory to God through our lives, through the mess, as well as the sweet stuff. Amen. So today I want to urge us, individually and also collectively, to practice a conscious dependence upon the Holy Spirit. This is one of our Covenant Church affirmations. So I decided to do this series on the affirmations in light of the pastoral transition. I, I, I thought it would be helpful for us to continually understand our denominational identity and how that identity plays out in our unique sanctuary context. So let's remind ourselves of the six affirmations We affirm the centrality of the word of God, the necessity of the new birth, a commitment to the whole mission of the church, the church as a fellowship of believers, a conscious conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit, and the reality of freedom in Christ. 
So on a most recent Intergen Sunday, I gave a brief message on the centrality of the Word of God. And I say brief because we had the kids in, and I could talk a long time about the centrality of the Word of God. But I gave a short message. How sweet are your words to my taste? Some of you remember, sweeter than honey in my mouth. Very good. And Pastor Rose followed with this awesome Mother's Day message on the necessity of the new birth. It was, uh, and then Pastor Mike gave a challenging and practical word about the whole mission of the church, even with some specifics on how we could get involved in the mission of the church. And then last week, Pastor Edwin gave an inspira- inspirational message on, on what it means to be a fellowship of believers. We are mission friends. We are friends on mission, he said. So now I want to focus on that dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, we could spend a lot of time, hours talking about the Holy Spirit, days but I'm simply going to look at a few passages of Scripture, not one, but a few. I'm going to remind us of a few key things about the Spirit, and then we'll spend most of our time focusing on that that expression, conscious dependence, and what that might mean. So first, let's look at the Gospel according to John. Now, when we get to the Gospel according to John, toward the end... You know, something that's in John that's different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, one thing is, is what happens in the last hours of Jesus' life. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see Jesus giving the Lord's Supper, and not long after, he's praying in the garden and arrested. In John's gospel, this long speech uh, by Jesus, it starts out in around chapter 14, goes all the way 15, 16, 17. If you have red letter edition of the Bible, it would all be in red. They, the scholars call this the farewell discourse. Jesus gives a long message to his disciples. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in me also. And he goes on to say many more things, including some things about the Holy Spirit. So if you follow with me in the gospel according to John chapter 14, um, 14 starting around verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. Before I press on, let me just mention that word advocate. A parakletos in Greek means literally one called alongside to help. You'll see how the different translations struggle with how to communicate this. NRSV says advocate. The new NIV says advocate. Your old King James says comforter. Some, <laughs> that's my old Bible, some kind <laughs> I got pages falling out. Some um, translations say counselor, some helper even. All of the above. The parakletos is all of that. And um, so it's hard to capture, but it is a word that could, use, could be described, uh, um, that you would use to describe a lawyer, one that you call alongside to help. So advocate is a good translation. He goes on to say, this is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him because he abides with you. He will be in you. And then in chapter 16, Jesus says some more things starting around uh, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will provide the world, I'm sorry, prove the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment, about sin because they do not believe in me about righteousness, because I'm going to the Father and you will see me no longer, about judgment, because the ruler of this world has been condemned. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, 
because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. For this reason, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So there are a few basic things that we should remember about the Holy Spirit. I'm just going to mention three things, and then we'll talk about conscious dependence. Few things, and we get some of that from John, but from many other scripture passages, is that the Holy Spirit, along with the Father and the Son, is God. The Holy Spirit, along with the Father and the Son, is God. Whatever makes God, God, attributes, characteristics, essence, whatever it is, is true of the Holy Spirit. He's not an impersonal force like in your Star Wars movies. The Holy Spirit is God, a person, person of the Trinity. So this is important to keep in mind. Secondly, the Holy Spirit has a broad, comprehensive mission. Sometimes people say that the Holy Spirit is the forgotten member of the Trinity, and they think that Pentecostals and other Charismatics are the only ones who pay attention to the Holy Spirit. I just want to point out that the Holy Spirit has always been active, even at creation. The Holy Spirit moves like the wind, and that's a little bit of a pun because pneuma in Greek means wind, breath, and spirit. Ruach in Hebrew means wind, breath, and spirit. And sometimes the words play on each other, even in the scriptures. The Holy Spirit is at work in the world, at work in the church, at work in individual lives. The Holy Spirit is busy. Yet, as Jesus says, the Holy Spirit, in a sense, is humble enough because, he's part of, because part of his job is to keep pointing people to Jesus. He says, he will glorify me. The Holy Spirit, thirdly, is present in and among God's people, in and among God's people. To be clear, the Holy Spirit is already here. You don't have to strike up the band to get his attention. You don't have to work yourself into a fever to get him to look in your direction. You don't have to lose control. After all, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. It's fine to dance. It's great to shout. We express ourselves as a result of the Spirit being here, not so that we can get them to come. And the presence of the Spirit isn't just about what happens in the service. And there's so much more we could say about that. Because even sometimes when we preachers want you to say amen or want you to respond to us, the silence we could, well, I'm sorry, the activity we could say is due to the Spirit. Maybe, maybe not. But we need to understand that the Holy Spirit is present even if you don't feel him. I want to be practical right now. I want to talk about that conscious dependence because many of us will ask the important question, how? How do I practice a conscious, a conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit? So I'm going to suggest three ways, and that's what most of my time here is about. Because this is an affirmation that we as, as a covenant church, we believe in a conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit. We depend on the Spirit. The first way you would imagine this, I think we would all agree, it's to pray constantly. Pray constantly. Let me remind you of what Paul says to the church in Thessalonica and toward the end of his letter, 1 Thessalonians, starting at verse uh, 16. He says, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Paul is saying prayer happens in the midst of joy and sadness. Regardless of life circumstances, we must be people who talk with God. Regardless of your temperament, you need to practice the discipline of prayer. Now, I bring in temperament because I think maybe somebody has written on this. I don't know. But sometimes I think our temperament impacts how we practice our faith. 
For example, most of the people I know who think that confrontational evangelism, you know, stopping a stranger on the street, tend to be people who think that's the best way to do evangelism, tend to be extroverts already who who are very comfortable getting in people's faces and having conversation. And sometimes I wonder if their theological view of things is also nourished by their temperament. Some people who think that the Holy Spirit works primarily through our emotions tend to be people who are emotional and pretty dramatic already. I think the Spirit works through their temperament in that way. It's just my little way of thinking because my observance after 40 years or so. And likewise, for some Christians, the faith is about following rules because they're predisposed to rule following. I'm that kind of person. I'm, if you know your Enneagram, I'm a one on the Enneagram. I'm a rule follower. <laughs> I, I had a brother, my oldest, well, he's a half brother, and he was in his 40s when I was in my young 30s. And uh, he called me, my brother never called me, he called me when I, shortly after I moved to DC. And I won't belabor you with all the details, but he was calling me and reminiscing about things in my life, things I didn't even know he knew about ever since my football playing days as a young guy and then young marriage and my kids. And I'm like, how does he know these things? But I had been writing letters to my grandmother. He was reading those letters. I didn't know. And he started to tell me some things. I was like, why, is, why are we having this very reflective conversation? I remember my little sisters telling me that he was really thin. So I said, I said, hey, Rick, are you HIV positive? He said, Dennis, I got full-blown AIDS. And he started to tell me, he was wrapping things up, as you can imagine. So I started talking to him about Jesus, and he said to me, oh, Dennis, I, you know, he said, I became a Muslim in prison. I didn't actually take half of what he said seriously, so I just kept on going anyway and talking to him. But, but it's not a strange story to hear young African-American guys influenced by a nation of Islam in prison, right? because it provides a structure that they didn't have. And some people need rules to thrive. I know Christians who are wired that way. But I also know there are Christians who are not wired that way, who will immediately rebel as soon as they perceive Christianity is about rules. I, <laughs> some folks came to the sanctuary because they were tired of churches that were about rules. You know, here it is Communion Sunday, and we don't have all the deaconesses up front in white, and we're not doing all our things by the certain regimentation that some people were used to. But what I'm trying to say is it doesn't matter if you're a regimented kind of person who likes the rules, or if you're a less, less structured type of person. What it's about is that both of us need to learn to pray. Because prayer isn't just about a rule, it's about a relationship. You talk with those you love. You listen to those you love. You spend time with those you love. Amen? That's the way prayer is supposed to be. So I don't know if you come at it in a regimented way or you come at it in a less structured way, but you need to pray. We need to pray. We used to have a regular Wednesday night prayer meeting when I came here. There were maybe about five or six people who were regular. Miss Eloise, you know, I don't want to make you sad about it, but one regular person there was our friend Skip. She was there all the time. And she even at some level prophesied that sanctuary would become a more family-type place. Her relatives uh, pulled me aside when we were at, her, at their home after Skip passed away and reinforced that message of things she said about the church before she passed. And sometimes, sometime after our sister Skip passed away, I was strongly encouraged mostly by the late Pam Singletary, a remarkable sister in the faith, to use my teaching gifts and make Wednesday night a Bible study night. 
And I'm just now realizing how God used these two white sisters in my life who have both passed away now, but their legacy at the sanctuary lives on. I took Pam's advice, started the Wednesday night Bible study. It's been good for several years now, but we still needed to keep prayer central. So thanks to people like Pastor Mike and Ann Holtz and Elder Nicole Smith, Ms. Pearly Dean, Nesta Corsi, Elder Vida Kent, Melinda Lowry, Geraldine Roberts, and a few others, we're finding more and more ways to get people together to pray. But I am really encouraging us to take this seriously if we want to consciously depend on the Holy Spirit. There's an old story about the great 19th century preacher in England, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. It's said that a young preacher came to visit Spurgeon's church. He had never seen Spurgeon, but he had heard about him. So he went to his church early, knocked on the door, and a man answered the door. He didn't know that the man was Spurgeon. And he asked, could he meet Spurgeon? Spurgeon said, first, let me show you the boiler room. The man had no desire to see the heating system of the church, but he followed the older man anyway. And they arrived at a room filled with people praying. Now, I don't know if that particular story is true or not, but it is reflective of Spurgeon's ministry. He was called the Prince of Preachers, and here's what one uh, scholar wrote about him. Spurgeon never took credit for the success of his ministry. Instead, he always pointed to the hundreds of people who came before service and prayed for God's blessing. He said any success he had come from God, uh, any success he had came from God in answer to their prayers. Spurgeon was often fond of calling these prayer gatherings the church's boiler room. Now, I've had church people not just here, but in other places, complain that it's my fault that they don't see more miracles in church or I don't create enough emotion for them to feel the Holy Spirit. I've had mostly black people complain that my intellectualism gets in the way of genuine fervor. It's funny, as an African-American, I've had white people treat me as if I'm stupid, and then I've had my own people disappointed with me because I'm educated. I'm telling you, it's a hard-knock life sometimes. But <laughs> and just let me say that if, if you don't think the Holy Spirit is moving at your church, Maybe you don't need to blame the preacher, but get on your knees. If, if, if you don't see people getting converted, get on your knees. If you don't see people getting healed, get on your knees. If you don't think we're doing enough ministry in North Minneapolis, get on your knees. And if you're worried about the budget, get on your knees. Now, I may be somewhat of an intellectual about my faith, but I'm smart enough to know that with God, all things are possible, and apart from him, I can do nothing. Amen. Amen. Now, <laughs> I was just had a conversation with a couple that visited our church for the first time this morning, a Korean couple. And we were reflecting because the wife also grew up in Queens, where I grew up, not too far from each other. I mean, she's much younger, but we reflected on the, on, on the community and also her coming out of a Korean church. I used to be the custodian at a church that was largely a, a Scandinavian church. And uh, they had an English service in the morning, uh, a uh, Norwegian service, the Koreans met in the afternoon, and then everybody, well, the English and Norwegians came back for an evening service. This is back in the 80s. And I was the custodian for a couple of years before I went to seminary. Anyway, coming back for the evening service, the uh, Norwegians would be very upset because when they walked in, the place smelled of kimchi. Now, imagine, you know, I, I, nothing against Norwegians and their food, lutefisk, <laughs> krumkaga, um, but nothing against Norwegians, but but, but spice isn't like a first thing you think of when you think of uh, Norwegian food. So, so when the Norwegians came in and boom, they're hit in the face with, with uh, the Koreans. But the Koreans, they, 
they ate together after every service, but a good hour to two hours before the service, these sisters and some brothers were coming in in those pews. While the other church was leaving, they came in and started praying. They were praying like two hours before the church even started. We can unlock the doors. We can put out the call. We can give you snacks. We can try to lay a guilt trip on you. But if you don't come to pray, then don't complain. Don't complain about the worship services. Don't complain about the pastor, the elders, or whatever else you don't like. Get on your knees. And don't just get on your knees alone. I believe in the prayer closet. Yeah, war room, I get it. But I would love to have had a boiler room. And Pastor Edwin was pretty vulnerable last week when he told the story about getting a letter and a tube of Bengay. I mean, that was awesome. And I want to thank many of you for your personal notes that you sent me over the last few years. Now, I'm not going to tell you now or bleed all over you and tell you how hard my first four years here were. Uh, I'll just say what typically sustained me were my own feeble attempts to pray and also the notes that came my way, the conversations that some of you had with me to say, I'm praying for you. Whoever your next pastor is, I am begging you, let that person have a boiler room. Let that person know that you're praying for their ministry, for this church, and for this community on a regular basis. Don't make them have to beg you to pray. Amen. I can say what I want now. I'm leaving. (laughs) Pray constantly. How else do we practice a conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit? Yes, we're praying constantly. But the second thing I would encourage is don't compartmentalize your life. You know, Romans 12, 1 and 2 says that, that, um, well, we'll put it right here. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Our whole lives minister to God, not just what we do on Sunday. Don't compartmentalize your life. About seven years ago, I was going through the application process to come here. And, and, and one, the first question on the application was this. I have all my notes. It says, describe your relationship to Jesus Christ. How do you practice your faith in everyday life? Now that you know me, you won't be surprised by my first sentence. I said here, I struggle to be somewhat succinct here (laughs) as this question touches on just about everything. I believe and preach that I should view the Lord as the center of my life with all my activities and interests flowing from my relationship to Jesus. So that means that the way I love my wife, my children, other people, the way I serve, the way I work, the way I recreate, the way I do just about anything must be done with an awareness that Jesus is present with me and desires for me to do whatever I do as an act of devotion. I'm far from perfect in this, but I do read the scriptures, pray, seek opportunities throughout the day to put my gifts into use. I think the practice of my faith is more than just private devotional moments, but it does include those. It must be shown in how I live in every context. Therefore, when I recycle waste, for example, I see that as a practice of faith because it flows from my respect for God's creation. Similarly, the people I meet when I go work out, go shopping or whatever, are to receive my care and compassion because the way of the Lord is the way of love. In general, the practice of my faith in everyday life means to operate with a Christ consciousness as much as I can. Christ consciousness. This is what I'm talking about when I say uh, a conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit. 
So I want to be a good example of someone who practices the presence of the Spirit. Now, of course, I sin more than I wish I did. I mean, the devil often works through the weaknesses that have plagued me during, throughout my life. So I might not lie or steal, but I can dishonor God by acting out of fear. The Holy Spirit wants us to resist temptation. He wants us to be aware and present throughout the whole day. So, so, so think about this. How might you practice the presence of the Lord? Have a not segmented part of life, but an integrated life. Think about it. Maybe it's when you're riding on the bus. Maybe it's when you arrive at work and just have a few minutes to get settled. Maybe it's a, a coffee break, or maybe it's when you get back from lunch and have those few minutes. Just take a minute, take a deep breath and say, Lord, I know you are here. I know you're with me. Fill me with your spirit so I might be aware of your presence and do your will. I mean, just stop throughout the day a few times and practice the presence of the Spirit. I mean, you might be dealing with anger. You might be dealing with crazy coworkers. You might get annoyed when the president's face pops up on the television. You might struggle not to eat a whole bag of Doritos. I mean, I don't know what rattles you, but a conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit means that we can be increasingly aware that we are not alone in the ups, the downs, and even the ordinary moments of life. The advocate is with us. Amen. So we practice a conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit by praying constantly, by not compartmentalizing life, but integrating life. And lastly, I'll say by having a collaborative attitude. I want to stress that this conscious dependence isn't just about us individualistically but, or individually, but about us as a community. Pastor Edgen last week preached about that uh, being connected, being a fellowship of believers. And sometimes American values, they, they have unduly influenced Christian belief, and so, but there are points of conflict, but we don't always see it. One of those points of conflict is in our individualization. We, we tend to take faith as a private practice. Faith is certainly personal, but it's not meant to be private. We're designed to be in fellowship with God, with one another. Real quick Bible lesson here. It's from Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. This is a verse that's familiar to a lot of people. I'm confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Christ Jesus. Now, most of us are used to that middle section there saying good work in you. And we tend to think you, while you, as being the singular. Now, it's in the plural, while you, it's you all. And the, and the Greek construction typically in other places gets rendered among you. So just think for a moment. What if Paul is not saying God did something in you, 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 which is our very American way of saying it. God did something in me. Ain't I special? What if Paul is saying to this whole church, God did something wonderful among you, and he's going to see to it till the day that might have a tendency to draw us together a bit more. If we realize that God did some, is doing something among us, not just in you and you and you and you, but among us. I think we could have a more collaborative attitude if we realize that God's at work among us. For some people in the church, many of our negative experiences happen at congregational meetings. I'll be straight. Often pent-up fears and anger come out in unhealthy ways. I grew to dread congregational meetings in my lifetime. I recall too many times when people came to the meetings with an adversarial attitude, a desire to fight, their views already fixed, not with a spirit of cooperation or collaboration. In other words, they treated those congregational meetings like American politics. 
Some of my proudest moments at the sanctuary happened, oddly enough, at my church gatherings and annual meetings. After potluck meals, we came together to deal with some challenging legal matters, with some tough financial issues, and also to decide as a congregation to buy land and build this awesome ministry center. We might think that the Holy Spirit is only busy on Sunday mornings when you're singing, shouting, and jumping, but I want us to know that the Spirit is here for all sorts of deliberations. The Spirit is here. I won't take the time to go through the next scripture passages I have because I don't have a whole lot more time, but I was going to talk about a time in the life of the early church when they had to deliberate over a difficult matter for them, which was the presence of Gentiles in, the, in this new Christian community. Hey, they got that Jews saw one God. The Jews were on this pathway, but Gentiles, they worshiped a whole bunch of gods. They had crazy sexual ethics. They ate whatever they wanted to eat. They had a whole different way of looking at life, but they were getting converted. And the early church didn't know what to do. They said, well, maybe they should get circumcised and eat kosher too. And they started putting burdens on them, trying to figure out maybe we should make them Jewish first on the way to being Christian or, or that's all mixed together. They had this big council in Jerusalem called the Jerusalem Council. And when they made a decision and they sent Paul and Barnabas and others with a letter to, to the Gentile believers. And in there, it said, it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. This was a collaborative group of people. At least they tried to be. Well, they had tension. A few verses later, Paul and Barnabas argue over taking John Mark on a missionary trip. And Paul and Barnabas go in separate directions. Paul takes Silas, Barnabas takes John Mark, and they go in separate directions. But they still were able to do ministry. And according to some other writings of Paul, he still gives Barnabas a shout out, still gives John Mark value. Their disagreement did not cause a fracture that was irreparable. What about us? How do we even practice the presence of the Spirit in a congregational meeting? Do you even come Believing that the Spirit is present at that meeting just like he's present in our worship services? Do you come trusting your leadership? If not, why not? Have you learned healthy ways to process your feelings in those gatherings? Can you work against Minnesota's history of passive aggressiveness? In other words, can you speak up at the meeting rather than complain in the parking lot after the meeting? I, I know, I told you, I'd say, you know, I've been around a long time. <laughs> A conscious dependence upon the Spirit means that we can have healthy, productive meetings even when there's disagreement. Wow. So I'm saying, at least in part, that a conscious dependence on the Spirit means that we're praying all the time as a community of believers. And I hope we can keep making that a priority. We can find the time. We can make the time. We can prioritize the time to come and talk together with God. Let there be a boiler room here. I believe that as we don't compartmentalize, but we see everything coming under the lordship of Christ, that that's another way we practice a conscious dependence on the spirit. Every facet of life is under the lordship of Christ. And then, of course, I believe if we could have a collaborative attitude from a, a collective standpoint, we are consciously practicing a dependence on the Holy Spirit to guide us in our decision-making and all that needs to happen for us as a community of believers. So what I'm saying is that God is present through his Spirit 
And we need to be aware of that. So right now, we're going to practice a ritual that reminds us that the Spirit of God is present among us. It's the, it's the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, the communion. And we recommit ourselves in these moments to, to, to recognize the peace that we have with God and the peace that we should have with one another. In some traditions, this is when people get up and go shake people's hands because they want to pass the peace of Christ before they come to the table. Because we are recognizing that the Spirit is here even when we take this simple meal. So before Pastor Edwin comes and shares the logistics of what's going to happen, I wanted us to come together and recite words that uh, early Christians have held on to for many, many years and that are said throughout the world um, to affirm what we believe about the Lord. If you're able, I'll ask you to stand with me and we're going to recite the Apostles' Creed together. Let's say together, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Lord, thank you for this time that we had together. Thank you, Lord God, for your Holy Spirit that you and the Lord Jesus sent to minister to and through us. Oh, Lord, there's so much we could say about the Holy Spirit, but we just want to say right now, thank you for not abandoning abandoning your people, but for being with us by your Spirit and even knitting us together and teaching us and bonding us and, and showing us the way, guiding us, filling us, empowering us. Thank you for your ministry, Holy Spirit. I pray that you would be working even right now, Holy Spirit, on on our lives, perhaps even to convict of sin or to encourage in some deep way, somehow to make yourself real. We thank you that you are here. Be glorified. Amen. Amen. You may be seated.